This is episode 35 of the Untangled Faith podcast. We're winding down a series on grief by sharing the end of Colby and Kat Wilkins' story that we've been sharing throughout this season and by hearing more from Emily Snook. This episode is longer than typical, but once you start listening, I think you'll understand why. Welcome to the podcast. If I'm going to love the church fiercely, I have to be really clear. We're really struggling to understand how this wouldn't be slander of our house. And that feeling of like, even just hearing it in her voice, like that, I never felt so seen because it was like, if people knew how hellish, and I don't say that word lightly, this was unlike anything I'd ever been through. And so what if instead of trying so hard to go back to normal, we could have an honest reflection of where we are and really accept it and fully grieve it. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. I have read a whole stack of books on grief and pain and suffering as I was preparing for this season and as I have been recording and editing the audio. And one of the books I've had on my nightstand for most of this time is the book, This Too Shall Last, Finding Grace When Suffering Lingers by K.J. Ramsey. I wanted to read a section of that book. In a culture fueled by fear, where the weakest are denigrated by the powerful, and cast into dark, dank places, out of sight, while the rest of the country tries to march happily on, we need to listen closely to Paul's subversive, challenging words. God has chosen what is weak in the world to show his wisdom. God has chosen what is small and despised to most to show his great love. The parts of the body of Christ we most don't want to be or see are the parts Paul says are indispensable. Emily had the mic to herself a couple of weeks ago, and she shared on several other episodes this season. Emily has a blood disorder that makes the risk of COVID something that has a huge impact on her life. In this conversation, Emily and I were talking about grieving past versions of ourselves and past places of comfort and security we enjoyed. There's this part of me, it's like, oh, if I could run away, if I could move somewhere, if I could delete my social media, start over and just keep my mouth shut, Mm -hmm. everyone would love me. Mm-hmm. And I could be the golden child yeah. and uh, I wouldn't be a threat to people. Can't unknow things. There are a lot of good things about it for a long time, but it's been a really long time. Like, I think that's been one of the biggest griefs for me, actually. Grieving who I was and especially mm-hmm. who I was like in relation to other things. To have like a sense of belonging and a sense of place. And like who I was to people, like, especially during the pandemic, like I tend to be the person where like, if people don't know things, they'll be like, Emily knows this, or she knows how to find out. And so they'll be like, Hey, do you know about this? Like obscure historical fact or whatever? And I'll be like, give me 15 minutes. I have a professor friend. I have an old book. I know like websites that are not Wikipedia. I've been that person And then all of a sudden, when it came to the pandemic, and I'm not even talking about like epidemiology things that I don't have qualification to talk about. I'm just saying, here are statistics. (laughs) Here is what happened in the Spanish influenza. Here is what this data says. Um, And those are things that I know how to look at and like, and things that you have trusted me to tell you, like you came to my class when I taught church history at church. You were really valued for that, what you right. brought. And, and so that. suddenly, yeah. like, the thing that I am in relation to people is just gone. Suddenly, I'm not trustworthy about things that you have always trusted me about. When I'm talking about digging water wells because one in five children who die die from a waterborne illness in the world, then you trust me to talk about statistics and to talk about our moral responsibility to, to act in systemic ways to protect other people from disease. 
but now suddenly I'm not trustworthy about it. Like what, what has changed there? And so that was a thing that was even harder for me than like my presence not mattering Yeah, was that my gifting also was no longer needed or welcome. It was the thing that made me feel like you loved me and needed me because I'm like a hermit. Like I'm okay if you don't want me, (laughs) but you also don't want the things that I bring that are good. And those were the things that I could hide behind. Now that you don't want that anymore, then it's harder to deal with the, what if it's me that you don't want? Your personality, you bring the knowledge. Yeah. That person that has been able to find that information, trustworthy information. And it was also the thing that made me safe. And so I was Mm -hmm. doubly unsafe. And then also I was like physically and, and also like relationally unsafe. It was this weird exposing. And I don't mean exposing in like showing the truth. I mean exposing in like exposure, like being left outside without shelter. It was that. I can relate in in some ways because I can figure out what people need. And I realized that like all this, this relational side of me now that sees the truth about people that are actually hurting means other people that I would love to have their approval. Yeah. I'm going to make them uncomfortable. I want that one part that I can show up somewhere and just plop on the couch, Mm -hmm. like metaphorically at a church and be known and loved. What happens when you bring your authentic self somewhere and you don't find that welcoming metaphorical family room couch where you can be yourself and find yourself valued and loved? That's the grief the Wilkins family has been sharing with us this season. Last week, we wrapped up with Colby sharing with us about how he had been invited to bring his concerns with him to a meeting and how, when he got there, he was told that he never should have brought those concerns. We're picking up with Colby and Kat right at that point in their story. And then, so that was Tuesday night. And it was like, we kind of felt heard, but not really. It was kind of shut down, but we need to have like an all elder conversation. And so the very next day, April 14th. 2021, not even a year ago, shared back and forth the tensest of meetings ever. We had said the lead pastor was harsh. That was the word that I was sticking to. And then one of the lay elders was like, so we met with um, lead pastor and he has admitted um, that he could work on gentleness. And Kat and I are just relaying just the hurt that we were experiencing. And it seemed like near the end of that, that we were kind of getting all of the blame. And then a couple of them were like, hold on. Like, I think we're at fault in some ways. Like we walked away feeling kind of hopeful, even though we shouldn't have been Mm -hmm. um, because there was no repentance or acknowledgement on the lead pastor's part. The elders were sitting there saying, oh yeah, he's acknowledged like his need to be more gentle. There's this sort of, he's being called to a little teeny bit of accountability. There were these moments in that meeting that I look back and I just want to crawl out of my skin. When you were saying, you know, we all want to get this right. Accuracy is really important. And so that you've found the way to share being like, it felt like, or my perspective is. Yes. Yeah. And I was doing that in that meeting. I mean, it was so important to me that I was saying stuff like, it feels like this is what's happening. And you know what he did? It's so bizarre to remember because the image I have is of like a lion, like pouncing at me. I said something like, it feels like time and time again, he interrupted me. And I mean, it was like, cat, you keep saying those words. It feels like. That means nothing to me. I need to hear words like repentance, forgiveness. That's li- I'm shaking right now. You keep saying things like it feels like, or it seems like, or time and time again, like that's not even true. I think I was like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. What do you even say to that? Yeah. I'm like shaking even as I remember it. But the other moment was that he said something and I had like a involuntary reaction. I did something like, Oh, like I said, something like just a sound and he freaked out. There's no other way to say it. He just said, Kat, you keep doing things like that. You keep making sounds like that. And I mean, I just was like this. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm shaking and my heart is pounding because I remember just feeling like 
so confused and also so alone because for most of that meeting, I actually was purposefully sitting back because I wanted Colby to be able to speak for himself. And he did. And he was so brave and really humble. Essentially later with that meeting and then where they were like, hey, we need to have this Wednesday morning meeting. When he came back from that meeting and he was like, yeah, so it seems like the elders are all backtracking on like their ownership. They just kept saying they needed me to really grasp how much harm I had done. He apologized for so many things so many times that when he came home and told me that, I remember saying to myself, I think I said it to him too, it's like they just want you to keep self-flagellating. The next week, I'm just told kind of last minute, hey, tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. there's going to be a meeting Uh, and this other lay elder is going to let you know. So I arrive and essentially that meeting is, Colby, do you realize how big of a deal you made this? Continuing to want me to own more and more. I'll be honest, I sat there and I, I took a lot of it. There wasn't a sense of a way forward still. Just that whole next week, I'm just in the darkest place. And I remember feeling and saying this to Kat, like I cannot even see into the next week. And so I can't see myself here. And so I think I need to resign. It was starting to become clear to me through phone calls with some of these lay elders that we are not seeing eye to eye. Like uh, this is an issue in terms of the dynamic between me and the lead pastor. And there's not any ownership. There's not going to be a healthy team dynamic. There's not a humility here. And so I was clinging to the sharp disagreement language between Paul and Barnabas. There's precedent for this in scripture. So that was a Wednesday. And then the next Wednesday morning, we had another 6 a.m. meeting. After Colby was told about this meeting, Colby responded by asking to steer this conversation in a new direction. Colby was ready to talk about resigning from his position. Yeah, I remember telling that to the lead pastor on the phone. And the way I remember that, he had already been told, one of the lay elders had told him already, but there was like this kind of jokey mood. He said he was sad and yet he sounded happy. So that Wednesday meeting happens. I'm just reiterating this is, I think this is a sharp disagreement. They are trying to con- convince me otherwise that I have been too sensitive. Nonetheless, okay, we're going to help you transition well. We're going to provide a severance for three months. Okay, we need to talk about what we're going to communicate to the church. They, they say that I can write um, a resignation letter and I can read it or they can read it for me. They're very emphatic that they did not want the lead pastor's name mentioned at all in uh, the resignation letter, that I should just own my part in Mm. the conflict. That's the only thing that's going to be communicated. I am just desperate to leave. And so I write that letter. Before I send it to them, we had one final meeting with the chair elder and his wife and Mm -hmm. Um, just a couple of dear friends weren't, weren't a part of the church who lived in the city and who were about to leave the city, but we had shared with them and they were just grieving with us. We asked permission of the elder and his wife. Can we have this couple sit in not to prove anything, not to say anything, just to be there for us as witnesses because we've been so alone. And they did. They said, yes, that sounds great. I had already resigned and yet I just felt in my heart of hearts, like, man, I just want to be so clear, like what these concerns are. So there's no question. And um, I had a conversation with a friend on the phone and he was like, yeah, man, you just want to love the church fiercely on your way out. If I'm going to love the church fiercely, I have to be really clear. Yeah. The one person I felt like I could be really clear to was this chair elder. I got busy. I just like wrote out the list as clear as I could and then started going through it, read through the entire thing. Near the end of that meeting, as we were kind of closing up, there was definitely pushback to some of the the terminology. I didn't know what spiritual abuse was myself yeah. until it had happened. Like mm-hmm. I didn't go hunting for, for these stories. Sadly, I was very ignorant of it all. And so there was this kind of like, is this the word? Is this the thing that is capturing what's happening? And I was like, I think there are 
domineering and spiritually abusive tendencies in the lead pastor's leadership. I was pretty emphatically, I don't, this doesn't characterize him as a person. I just didn't want them to think I was demonizing him at all because I wasn't, but just trying to put a name to what I was experiencing and it fit. Yeah. There was some, we wrapped up the meeting. We're all kind of standing around and the most bizarre number of things happened. This chair elder mentioned a possible job opportunity for me, asked if this whole situation was going to affect our friendship. In the back of my mind, I'm like, how would this not affect our friendship? And I walk in kind of after going back out to the kids, coming back in kind of as we're milling around and Colby is like talking to this elder, answering the question about, do you think this is going to affect our friendship? And he looked at me and this man, he and his wife had spent hours with us. Yeah. And like, they knew us, they lived life with us. And he asked me that question. And I said, I believe it is going to change our friendship. And I remember saying something to the effect of to be in relationship with you requires us to question our own reality. And so, yes, this is going to affect our friendship. There was a text that Kat had sent to someone or a phone call rather, um, about the situation and had said the word spiritual abuse. So this was one phone call um, to one church member and had said, yeah, there had absolutely been spiritual abuse and didn't name names or anything, but it wouldn't have been too hard to read between the lines. So we talked about that conversation because that seemed to be troubling. We we asked like, is, is that going to be an issue? Because there's already kind of this image management happening with my resignation letter. And then, okay, what are you telling people? Like what? And, and so there was that one conversation that we talked about. And, and I remember Kat, like we were in the kitchen and just asking like, do I need to do anything about this? And this, this man saying, no, I've already talked to her. We're good. And so there was this sense of like, okay, we're fine. We have kind of tied up any loose ends in this conversation We've loved the church. Like we've been really clear. Sunday rolls around. And Sunday, is this the day you're supposed to read your resignation? Okay. Mm -hmm. So one detail I left out in that Friday meeting with um, the elder chair was I asked him, I was like, I'm about to send my resignation letter to y'all. This is what I'm going to say. And he told me not to come on Sunday. I took his word on on that and Mm -hmm. I didn't go. And so Sunday rolls around and we don't, we're not there. We don't have an insider that's going to kind of explain what's happening. The church meeting happens. We're at a different church that Sunday morning and just weeping the Mm. entire time. I remember Kat was just truly like weeping in the pew. And so we are waiting to hear. We actually asked one of the church members like, hey, what happened at the church meeting and they were like, I think they're going to send you a letter. We hadn't heard from them, but like, okay, we're probably going to get a letter explaining what happened. There was one church member that stopped by and just said, man, they were so honoring of you in this meeting. And so we we're like, oh, okay. Uh, I wonder what they, what did they say? So we get their letter and it's eight days after the meeting has happened. So a full week has gone by. We didn't hear anything. Oh my gosh. Receiving this letter this was spiritual abuse. Mm. It's like if we didn't know before or if I was on the fence before Mm. about using that word, it just became so Mm -hmm. clear. They were using scripture left and right, really weaponizing scripture to just say that we were in unrepentant and ongoing sin and slander of the lead pastor in his home. And in the back of our minds, we're like, who are we slandering to? They listed that one, those family friends of ours that had joined the meeting, that this was slander. Like you can, you can share your concerns with the elders only and their wives. And that is it. And so that meeting that we had on Friday was not okay in their mind. There's a lot of hurtful and confusing things in the letter from the church leadership. But I just want to point back to the fact that last meeting that they had, they had permission from the leadership to have their friends there. For them to now say that that was not okay is truly baffling. And we're like, who are we supposed to go to? Like this was someone not in our church. 
And they were even about to leave the city. So it just felt like a yeah. safe. Did they say that all that stuff in the meeting that was in the letter? They are walking through how we are an ongoing sin mm-hmm. and slander. They said that I had disqualified myself as an elder, wasn't able to leave my house. And that was news to me that you were mm-hmm. thinking I was disqualified as an elder. They said that I had elected not to be at that meeting. Yeah. And so there was just like this twisting, like things that they hadn't told me. Like Matthew 18 no longer applied in this situation somehow. And they were walking through stories of reasons why I was hurt um, before the entire church, but all from their vantage point, all from the lead pastor's vantage point, wow. truly. All of that was in that letter. That was all in the letter. I mean, I need to pull this up because like the letter itself, I did want to read a part of it. So one thing that they had said was that essentially we were, we were just like the chief reason for our hurt. The part that Colby was saying he was trying to find and he couldn't find was a passage about it's scriptural to not snuff a smoldering wick. You know, they said in the letter, like, we believe it's scriptural to not snuff a smoldering wick, even if it's what they said was that Colby was looking for is, we told the congregation, we don't deny that you're hurt and that it's scriptural to be gentle with those who who have been hurt, even though we told the church, your sin is the chief cause of your hurt. And it's ironic because at that one meeting with the lay elders, when I begged, begged in tears, I mean, shaking, please be gentle with us. We are bruised reed. Like we are the bruised reed right now. Please be gentle with us. You got this letter. You don't have a job anymore. No job. How were you even functioning at this point? We lost our community overnight. In the letter, they told us what they told the church that, you know, it's just natural to be compassionate and, you know, to weep with those who are weeping. And so we advise you not to seek out the slander of the Wilkins. And once you hear slander, you can't unhear it. And so effectively, we were just cut off uh, from everyone in the church immediately. We had to leave the city. And so we had some friends out in Colorado who, KJ and Ryan, who, yeah, had a friend, uh, a mutual friend of ours who had a, an Airbnb that she just wanted to test out. And so we went out there and with our kids, stayed for a full week, just like drove up in the mountains, did some fishing with the kids. And at night when the kids were asleep, yeah, through tears, we had to share the whole story. Ryan and KJ were just there to listen and offer their presence. And it was more than that because they they had so much wisdom. The timing of this is so interesting to me. You know, my podcast started, my first episode was shared like April 14th, 2021. Wait, 2021? Oh my goodness. April 14th. That was a, a, when everything was like hitting the fan that day. When I wrapped up that first season, I Mm -hmm. had reached out to Ryan and asked him if I could talk to him for the podcast. Wow. We set up a time and he ended up having to reschedule because some friends came from out of town that they were working with What? that had gone through something really hard. Mm -hmm. That's so crazy. Yeah. That was the same time. I I got bumped for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's like the best reason. I, the, all of the those little threads and how God um, worked out the timing of that is really. Yeah. And now we're Here we're friends, Amy. Yes, we're friends. But God provided someone for you to be a mm-hmm. pastor to you in a time when you really needed it. Truly. I think it was either KJ or Ryan that they were just talking about how come out to Colorado and just experience a spacious place where you can yeah, breathe in the air here. And I I didn't realize that they were taking from a Psalm about just a spacious place at the time. It just felt like God was wrapping his arms around us with them. We got the letter when we were with them and we sent it to them first. We were just in such shock of the whole situation that they read it first. And they're like, I don't know if you should read it. You aren't going to be able to unhear these things. Kat, I thought about that for a moment and we're like, no, no, no. It's a hard thing, but we need to lean into this and respond to it. We read it together with them, and it was such a difficult experience. Um, In some ways, the lies were so clear, and the hypocrisy 
we had literally just gone to a friend. We had talked to one church member and, but had been very clear with an elder about that situation. It's like, we were walking with integrity here. We were expressing our concerns. So you're processing this while you're in Denver. Yeah. So at some point you just decided you needed to respond. What was that next step for you? Next step was, yeah, coming home and I didn't have a much community right there in Kansas City any longer. And so was on the phone with family, with, with former pastors and get as much wisdom as I could in my yeah. response. We sat on our response for a while, started writing it. And then I literally sent the letter out um, for feedback from five or six people. Hey, what do you think of this? Like, is this a peaceable kind of response? And then finally, near the end of May, was able to send our response, list out our apologies, list out really clearly our concern about the lead pastor just in one paragraph. Here's what we're concerned about um, a domineering and spiritually abusive tendency in his leadership. And then talk about what did y'all do at this church meeting? We're really struggling to understand how this wouldn't be slander of our house yeah, in our names, how you wouldn't come to us and say that we're an ongoing sin and what we're doing when we've been completely transparent with y'all. All the meetings you've had. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly we, we disagree on this. Um, but we have been utterly transparent and you have not been forthright with us about this being sin and that this is slander, but instead took it to the entire church where we were told not to come. Yeah. And they misled them by saying that you had chosen not to be there. Pulled the wool over all of their eyes. Yeah. It, it felt good to finally respond to that. We had severance in writing at that point, but just a week and a half later that they responded and just said, it's clear that you have hardened in your position, that you're not interested in repenting, and we reject the arguments in your response in their entirety. You, this was their response to your letter that you sent them after the, mm-hmm. the meeting saying, right. this is not right. right. And then they rejected that letter in its entirety. Yeah. The arguments in your response in their entirety. In that letter that responding to us, they, they told us that they were removing our severance effective immediately. In the back of our minds, we're like, okay, we have it in writing without any conditions. And you're just going to take it away immediately. The question in our minds was, what's changed? So what does repentance look like? In your previous letter, you told us repentance means not doing this quote unquote slander, right? And so we weren't like, we were literally talking to no one. We had this script of what we were texting to everyone. And it was like, you know, we're so sad to leave the church. You know, it's not a good fit for us at this point. We're moving on to something different, like just the, in the most yeah. um, plain terms. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, it's clear you've hardened in your sin. We're going to take away your severance. After um, receiving that letter, I remember calling the chair elder and begging him, what does it look like to repent? What are y'all looking for? Coupled with that had requested again, we requested numerous times previously, but we would love to sit down with a third party mediator, someone who's neutral, who's trained in this, who can help us all sit at the table and have yeah, a conversation about where yeah. we're all at. Yeah, we, we felt little hope that there was going to be any real desire to do that. We got a phone call back from that same elder and he's like, we, we talked about getting a third party mediator and um, there's been some resistance because you know, um, spiritual abuse is a hot topic these days. And we're concerned that they would just come in and and label it that. It's not surprising to me that they weren't interested in a third party Mm. neutral observation of it. After we requested it, they did send us a couple of names, but they were all friends. I was like, uh, you're not getting the picture. Like these are people who are not trained in this. They're also not neutral. So no, to the third party neutral person. Mm-hmm. Was that just the end of it for you? Did you, you're like, okay, there's nothing else I can ask for. The the request for mediation was sidestepped numerous times. And we felt like we were kind of opening ourselves up again, kind of vulnerably yeah. um, to come to the table 
And for that to just be met with resistance every time, it's like, okay, this is clear. And then it was around that time um, I got a phone call from one of my brothers and realized that the lead pastor had actually called my brother in the name of looking for advice, had listed out all these concerns about Kat. It just that moment of hearing that, um, he hadn't shared that with us, you know, didn't really think it was relevant, my brother, um, but then also was maybe a little bit afraid that it had kind of been kind of the Pandora's box opening moment. We'd found out he'd called Colby's brother months prior to the excommunication about the concerns about me, of course, but then later called Colby's brother again. And when it was apparent they were going through church discipline, Colby's brother, who had been at CHBC, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and who was sort of the mothership of all of this, right? Was um, yeah. He said to lead pastor, this would never have happened at CHBC. It's too subjective. This is Colby's brother's words. The lead pastor said to him in response, well, you don't know the whole story. So that was the second conversation, right? Where he called Colby's brother months ago to, about Colby's brother's concern or about his concerns about me. Uh, but after Colby had found out that the lead pastor had talked to his brother and Colby said that was the first time he really felt rage because it just felt so hypocritical where we wrote the email and said, do not contact us again. After that, we both blocked. I mean, I will never regret this blocking the senior pastor's number and email. And he then called Colby's brother and called him again and called him again and called him again. And he wouldn't pick up, but he eventually picked up. And he told us later what he said was to Colby's brother, um, hey, have your brother call me. He's blocked my number. But he did say it was so clear that the only reason this lead pastor reached out to me that final time was to get ahead of the narrative, defend his name, and set the record straight. But when I heard that, I was just enraged because we are being accused of slander and here the lead pastor's like gone to my brother. This is just next level. And somehow it can be baptized in, in kind of spiritual language. So it just felt like another twisting of the knife. Mm-hmm. Once I heard that, I wrote a response to them and it was, hey, we're going to cease contact immediately. Laying out, yeah, it's hard for us to not see how this is turned into slander of our house. Not to mention... There were some other people in Kansas City not involved in the church who knew the story in detail. We're being told that we're slanderers, but we're not talking to anyone. And people seem to know things that you didn't tell them. The sense of, uh, of just hypocrisy was just really on display. It really feels like this preemptive attack on your credibility. Yeah. They're going to preemptively tell you tell people things that would make them not want to believe you or Mm -hmm. not find you credible. Reading about image management Mm -hmm. in Wade Mullen was like, oh my goodness, this is exactly like there's the stage, what church leadership wants everyone to see. And then there's backstage. And Colby mentions Wade Mullen here. And I want to read a little excerpt from Wade Mullen's book, Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. Here's a little section from that book. The person who occupies a position of power and the deference with which they are treated because of that position is another important factor in creating an abusive environment. If we return to the analogy of the play, audience expectations affect how people in different roles are perceived. People in power learn to perform in a manner consistent with the role they have been given. In churches, for example, the roles of pastor, priest, preacher, and prophet often come with high expectations, one of which might be a supernatural calling. Those who occupy these roles then are not treated as ordinary people, but as recipients of God's anointing, giving them implicit power over their congregations. If they can just cast me as this sinful slanderer who's dangerous to your spiritual vitality, then wow. Well, that's the easiest solution for the group. You move on to something else and they get to just keep all their friends in their Mm -hmm. church and people aren't going to really want to believe the thing that's really hard to believe. Yeah. And it's certainly costly to stand with anyone who's, who doesn't have the authority who's being abused. If the narrative is the situation with you is a distraction from 
the work that God is trying to do. Here's the disunifier right here. You trying to do what you believe was the right thing of not talking about it, not sharing with everybody, wasn't causing them to play nice. No. The final phone call that I had with that chair elder, it was really clear that repentance meant recanting concerns. You want me to change my mind about what I'm concerned about? The only way that I would truly be able to change my mind is if I saw something different. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't seeing anything different. Actually, everything I saw was confirming and even heightening my concerns. So you told them you didn't want to have any more interaction. Yeah. And that was a hard decision because yeah. it felt like I was closing the door in a final way. But mm-hmm. we were in such, I mean, truly traumatized state. Yeah, We had opened ourselves up again and again. So did they decide to play nice with you then? Did we all live happily ever after? All right, let's peacefully go our separate ways. And everyone did. Is that what happened? No, not at all. On June 20th, Father's Day, and a lot of the concerns about me initially had been about my parenting. And so it felt like this really cruel irony. But on Father's Day, they held a meeting and voted to excommunicate both Kat and me from the church. They had started this kind of process of discipline and announcing it to the church and saying we are an un- ongoing and unrepentant sin. And, and so it just seemed like they had to continue this trajectory, like, well, apart from repentance and kind of a restoration into good standing in this local church, well, of course, we're going to have to move in this direction. I think they, they charted the path and they couldn't kind of- mm-hmm. They couldn't stop. They couldn't get out. along the way. It would have required too much of them. Kate, how did you find out? Did you get another letter? No other letter. I actually have never been told I was excommunicated by the elders. So you've secretly been excommunicated. In in part, they would be like, well, it's because you cut off communication. Okay. I mean, they could have written a letter and we still lived in the same town. I can't remember if it was you or Melissa. Was it you who in that episode described the agony of those weeks when you're being told you're the problem and you're trying to share the truth, but you don't know what to believe anymore. And you really just want to be faithful. Like all you want is to do the right thing. That's Melissa. That's yeah. Melissa. Okay. And that feeling of like, even just hearing it in her voice, like that, I never felt so seen because it was like, if people knew how hellish, and I don't say that word lightly, I don't know what hell's like, but this was unlike anything I'd ever been through. The pain of, God, are you here? And if you're here, are you mad at me? Am I totally gone here? Yeah. Because they're telling me that I'm this unrepentant sinner and I really want to know what's true. And I'm willing to apologize and repent. And I mean, as you remember from your recording with Colby, their story kind of kept changing and what they wanted from us. So that was really- Yeah, uh, Yeah, there was never anything. It was a very moving target, yeah. We didn't have, right? We we sound really confident now. We had no idea that we were being abused. No idea. Yeah. I mean, we really didn't. And I like have a counseling, a master's in counseling. And I've been working at this point for five years as a therapist. I have the categories for it. And that's given me a lot of compassion too with victims of domestic violence and abusive relationships where you know something's not right, but it costs you too much. And also your freaking mind isn't working very clearly to be able to go, whoa, hold on. This is not right. We heard that people were raising concerns about this being really fast. There being this sense of like the elders saying like, this has been like an eternity for us. I resigned on April 30th, uh, no, April 28th. And then excommunicated on June 20th, less than two months later. Yeah. This was incredibly fast. The fact that they felt the need to do that you were not causing trouble with their congregation. You were existing. Yeah. It's like, these were concerns that I felt so yeah, burdened by. And so sure about that. I resigned. Like I separated myself from this community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why do you think they chose excommunication? Of course you can't read their minds. What would be the point of it? I mean, I was an elder here, so I understood what we meant would have meant by it is is saying that you can't credibly affirm someone's uh, profession of faith. The elders had gotten to a point where they could no longer affirm that I was a Christian. Mm. 
that's what excommunication is, is saying, by the way this person is living, they're so out of step with a life um, of a Christ follower that, yeah, it would be false advertising to the world to have them walking around saying they're a Christian and a member of our church. I remember, yeah, having a conversation with someone and, and, and them just saying like, when they excommunicated you, you're now forced to tell the story. Like you could have just parted ways. Sure. Yeah. That would have been hard in its own way. But mm-hmm. when they made this public declaration that they can't affirm your salvation, it's like, well, now you actually have to publicly share the story because yeah. there's only one narrative out there. It's their narrative until now. The narrative is out there and people can judge for themselves. How does that feel? A little scary? Sure. Yeah. I mean, people are, I'm sure, going to have questions. Yeah. And even like, Colby, why are you taking this public? Mm-hmm. Aren't you doing the very thing they excommunicated you for? Yeah. I am, I am raising the flag and saying this was not right. Colby and Kat's transparency and willingness to share their lives with all of you this season has been a gift to me. And I know it's been a gift to you too. Raising the flag to say, this isn't right, takes guts. They've shared their story with no guarantees that it will change anyone's minds. But they do have that peace that comes from knowing if someone cared to know the truth, they've provided a way for that to happen. Now we're going to jump back into that conversation I started with Emily at the beginning of this episode. Who we are as a people has been foundationally shifted. We don't get to decide that we're not. We are. Like I was thinking about when the Oklahoma City bombing happened and they built the memorial, all of these things came out of there is this deep wounding to us as a people and we are changed by it. And so we had to decide like what that change was going to look like. And the people of Oklahoma City like decided we're going to build something beautiful out of this wounding. We have an NBA team because of it. We have the Memorial, which is amazing. We have the Memorial Marathon. There's this huge revitalization. It's not because of the horrible thing that made the change. It's because then you decide afterward, what are we going to do with it? Because you don't get to decide that it didn't happen or that it didn't matter. A lot of the time, people think that acceptance is like being over it. And it's mm-hmm. not, it's being able to admit all of it, right? Because because we've had right. like the denial and anger and bargaining and depression, which are all really kind of different versions of the same thing of like not wanting it to be true. Acceptance is being the gloss, the grief full in the face and saying, okay, this is what this is. And then whatever comes afterwards is in the light of that. And so yeah. it's it's not being okay. I mean, sometimes it is, but. What are the big things that are in your, your brain as you have been thinking about talking to me and like listening to your own voice and living this in, in real time? There's not a distance. It's right now. I've actually been thinking about this bridge that is right outside of my neighborhood. So my neighborhood like ends in a dead end. Coming out of my neighborhood, this bridge goes like right to a highway. Like it's super convenient, but it had like erosion and was basically like crumbling in the creek bed. So they started working on it in June and they are still in March doing dirt work. Haven't even started repairing the bridge yet. They've just been tearing out the creek bed and rebuilding it for, I don't know, like almost a whole year. There are other ways out of my neighborhood, but like that's the most convenient way. I found these new paths so that sometimes I don't even think about it. Like I don't even think like, Hey, I can't turn this way. Um, I can't go this way. It's just automatic. Cause I've found these new paths and, and I've kind of adjusted to it, but then I'll be driving on the street that it goes to and realize, Oh, I can't go this way. And now I'm stuck. Like I'm going to have to drive through a neighborhood, turn around because I forgot this thing was here. And it's not that I can't navigate it. I can. Man, I'm really ready for it to be fixed. We go on a walk a lot and look to see what the, what they're doing on the bridge. So the other day there was a new machine there. for, And I was like, oh, maybe they're starting a new part of it and it's going to be done soon. 
And then like the next day, the dirt trucks were back. And I was like, oh, I kind of think that's what acceptance is like. The broken thing is still there and I can navigate it and I can even like be fine. But then there are times, even though it's, it's not a big deal anymore, man, I am waiting for the day when I don't have to navigate around this thing for everything that I do. Mm. And I think that's sort of what living with like the accepted aftermath is going to be is that someday this broken thing is not going to be in front of us that we have to figure out how to work around to do anything. In the meantime, I can learn how to navigate it. I guess one of the frustrating things is that broken bridge only impacts certain people in certain neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, It's not in the way of everybody, but for you, you can't just pretend that it's the same. You have to go somewhere else to get to the highway or to get where you're going. You have to take a longer route. Is there anything good about the route? I have to drive past Sonic to go anywhere. And so I get Sonic a lot. (laughs) I like that. Well, and the thing about it is like, if they hadn't torn out the bridge, it was crumbling underneath. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, no, there's, there's nothing good about it. It just, it just annoys me, but eventually there's going to be a, a bridge there that is safe. And the thing is, is that like, I didn't even know it wasn't safe before. And I was driving on it with my kids every day. I mean, it's kind of this catch 22. I mean, not even a catch 22. It's just both things at once. Like I hate it and it makes me mad and it sucks. And it ruins my life sometimes just a little bit because something that should take me three minutes takes me 13 minutes. But also someone saw that and tore it up and like made this big mess in my life. And that saved me from something that could be much worse. And that's not always the case, but in this case it is. The thing that has really, that I've been trying to work toward is I am not going to be okay with some of these things. I don't know how to be okay with ignoring and excusing and enabling sexual abuse. I don't, and and I shouldn't be. I don't know how to be okay with people saying on one day talking about being pro-life and protecting vulnerable babies. And then the next day saying my body, my choice and telling vulnerable immunocompromised people that it would be fine if they died. I cannot be okay with that, but I can eventually figure out a way to stop driving on that street until it's a safe place to drive. And I think that's the thing for me is that as much as there's so much loss and so much pain and so much sorrow around these things, I'm also starting to see having those things shown to me and sort of ripped open as a kind of salvation and deliverance from a really unsafe road that I was driving on that I didn't see what was crumbling underneath. Acceptance is not saying, hey, this is fine. Acceptance is is saying, hey, this is true. Now, how do I get where I need to go? But also has just given me this freedom to to go on different routes. One one of the things that I I like about Twitter, I get to hear and, I mean, read, hear and see such beautiful expressions of faith from my friends who are Methodist and my friends who are Wesleyan and my friends who are different traditions of Methodist and Wesleyan, my Anglican friends, my Episcopalian friends, my Presbyterian friends. And in the midst of this uncertainty, and that's a thing that I forgot how much I love. And so one of the things that this sort of breaking of certainty has given me and the isolation Mm -hmm. from a lowercase c church has meant that I've just had to open those doors back up wide. I mean, I have friends who will send me like, hey, I read this was our reading today in the liturgy and I thought that it would apply to this thing for you. 
or um, reading the Book of Common Prayer with one of my Anglican friends, which I'm doing, you know, listening to my Presbyterian friends, like talk about some of the same issues that we're dealing with and, and to have a sense of, I, I talked about that glass box that I was standing on and it shattered. And then there was a rock underneath and, and realizing like everybody had those boxes, but the rock we're standing on is all the same. And, and so in, in the same way that I've lost that certainty in a lot of things, I've also become more solid and sure about the things that are essential. I don't have to be certain about all those other things all the time because I can be assured of this and not needing to know all the answers is on the one hand hard for me, but on the other hand is freeing because I can't. It was killing me to try to know all the everything all the time because some things I just can't know and I can't be sure of. But to be able to learn to sort through the, okay, this is the thing that I can be sure and that I need to be sure. And this is a thing that I can hold loosely. That has been actually really freeing for me. So do you feel like you can use that part of your brain, that part of who you are now in a way that feels less like the stakes aren't as high? Can you engage that way without slipping into having to figure out? I kind of tend towards, I want to say intellectual rigor, but what it really is, is intellectual rigidity. And I think that's why like the loss of certainty was so hard for me. Like, here's what I don't want to say. I don't want to say God did this thing to teach me this lesson because that is not what happened. Sometimes that's what happens. What I think really happens is that when we are trying to have ears to hear and eyes to see, then in those places where we are being broken, it lets us look at things in a way that we hadn't looked at before. And so I don't think that it's God made this thing happen so that you will learn this lesson But I do think God's always been telling us this thing that we need to hear. And suddenly we're paying attention in a different way. In Romans, when it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, I think that sometimes we interpret that as everything that happens is good. And that's not what that verse means. It means no matter what happens, God can make something good and beautiful come from it. And so I was thinking about that in the, you know, while we're recording today, the the stuff with Ukraine and I saw something on the internet. And so I looked it up to see if it was true. And the University of Virginia Agricultural Department does say that it's true. So about sunflowers absorbing toxic metals and radiation from the soil. And so there's this tie between Ukraine and sunflowers and they have Chernobyl and they have all this like radiated soil and sunflowers will actually irradiate the soil. They You can plant them in soil that is toxic and damaged and something beautiful will grow out of it. Does that mean that it's good to have radiated soil? No, it does not. And it also doesn't mean that you have to have that for sunflowers to grow, but it means that even (laughs) here, God has made it possible for something beautiful to spring up and for that beautiful thing to take some of the sting of death out of that thing. Beth Moore in Chasing Vines says, Christ can bring fruit from his followers and calculable suffering, but on this side of eternity, the point isn't making it worth it. It's about making it matter. And so we'll say a lot of times, oh, it's worth it because of this, but sometimes it's not worth it. It is not worth a million lives lost to COVID to learn some kind of lesson. I think when we say worth it, we give this message that said right. that God had to have right. this happen in order for him to do this other thing. Scott Baranato wrote a really good article in the Harvard Business Review, I think. That discomfort that you're feeling is grief is the name of the article. And in it, he talks about what he calls a sixth stage of grief, which is meaning and making it matter. Mm. And so that it doesn't mean that all of those things were worth it, but it means what can I plant here? What new path can I walk here, even in a way that 
that I don't like going forward for me is going to look like, what am I doing to make this matter? Making it matter can be little and big. I think that we have fundamentally changed in a society as a society in ways that we aren't really ready to deal with yet. But I also know that that's true of me. Mm -hmm. Like I am different and I can't be who I was before. So do I want to join in with God in planting flowers and toxic ground? And so I'm going to make the way that this changes me matter. And, and that's my prayer for us as people of faith and as churches too, is that what a tragedy on top of tragedy it would be if we just went back to normal. What if we took... Yeah. Even though so many of us would just love to go back to normal. That's what we think we want. Going back to normal is not growing. And so what if instead of trying so hard to go back to normal, we could have an honest reflection of where we are and really accept it and fully grieve it and then say, okay, what do we do to make this normal? What beautiful things do we plant? Kurt Thompson and Pepper Sweeney have a podcast called Being Known. Um, Kurt Thompson is the author of The Soul of Shame. In their new season, it's about trauma. And and they talk about creating beauty in the bomb creators of our lives. And so you you don't ignore the trauma and you don't even try to get back to baseline. But you have a generative imagination in the midst of the hardest things, like those sunflowers, of what beautiful thing could grow here. And I was thinking about in your interview with Curtis Chang in the first episode of the season, when he talks about his voice lessons. When I heard that, I was just like, yes, Curtis. It's this sort of prophetic rebellion against the not yet, right? Because we're in this already where beautiful things are going to be able to spring up and new things are going to be able to be created and bridges broken are going to be able to be mended but sometimes not. And so these these little seeds of rebellion against the brokenness of the newness that's coming, whether that's planting sunflower seeds in a nuclear fallout zone or, or taking singing lessons because you know someday you're not going to need them. Like these, these little declarations of the coming wholeness in the midst of the brokenness. And it doesn't make the brokenness not there, but it means that we see clearly not just where we are, but where we're going. And so I want to be able to hold those two in tension, not just to be fine and move on, because I don't think that's possible or healthy, (laughs) but to be honest and to plant the seeds of wholeness in the broken things. Moving on without taking that experience with you doesn't allow for the creation of some of these really new, beautiful things. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's like the mulch. You're going to sprinkle this dead over this ground. In faith, something is going to grow. I think that looks different depending on the situation. Like for some people, that that beautiful new thing looks like going somewhere else. And then sometimes it looks like building something new where you already are. Sometimes it looks like taking ground that's already broken and and tilling rows for a garden. I don't want to be okay. I want to be changed in a way that that is conforming me to Christ and also trusting God that he makes things beautiful, even when I'm standing in the midst of something that is super not and to be able to hold those things in tension and believe them both fully and to give space to myself and to other people to say, this is not okay. This will never be okay. It will never be okay to me that we shrugged our shoulders at a million of our neighbors dying. Never. Yeah. Or that we left people behind that we didn't need to leave behind. And I do want what grows in me there to be more compassion and more softness and more seeing the value of other people, even people who, who I want to dismiss. I want what grows out of me in that to be fruitfulness 
but I also want to still be able to tell the truth about it. And I think sometimes there's not space for that. One of the things that, that we have to be able to do, whether it's with an abuse victim or someone in grief or whatever is, is to hold space for the bitter and the beautiful to both be true at the same time. And so I was thinking about in the Passover Seder, like it's about like the the deliverance of of Israel out of Egypt, right? But they eat bitter herbs to remember their suffering in Egypt. And so the celebration of being delivered is, is held together with the remembering of those bitter things. We don't want to grow bitterness, but we do want to plant it and trust that God is going to to make something beautiful bloom out of it. We want to hold on to it with one hand, knowing that there's something beautiful that's coming to transform it. It doesn't mean that you don't trust God or believe that Jesus is triumphant or any of those things. If both of those things are true for you, we have to give people space to be fully human and to be fully human to quote the good place means that you're a little bit sad all the time because of death and because of loss and grief. The promise of Jesus is that much sweeter because of this sadness that we're carrying with us. We don't have to pretend it's not there to trust Jesus. In fact, like trusting Jesus while we're holding it is the whole point. We need light because of the darkness, right? Mm -hmm. And so to say like, hey, you have to lay this down because Jesus is victorious. I think that's wrong. And this is part of the gospel. We remember and proclaim. Yeah, Russ Ramsey says this uh, as we are gathered before we take communion. Like he always says, that we remember and proclaim and that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Mm-hmm. That incorporates the sad past. Yeah. Has to be a part of that. It's it lives right there with that, yeah. that future hope that we have. The not yet is not threatened by the right now. Mm. Like Jesus's victory does not mean that the sadness right now is not true. It means that the sadness right now is not victorious. The promise of the resurrection and of all things being made right, graves being made into gardens and, and swords being beaten into plowshares is that we can walk through these things and hold them honestly. And we don't have to pretend because the truth of them, the truth of them is powerful and it is real and it hurts and then there's Jesus. And those two things are side by side. And so we say, this is not as it should be. And this too is being made right. I've had a lot of people ask me like, well, when are you going to be over this? And I think because I have chronic illness and I know that sometimes you don't get to get over things, you just carry yeah. them. You have some practice with that. Not- having the luxury of being able to get over something. I have some practice with not getting over it. I don't know that I can get over it, but I know that I can continue to carry it because eventually I will not have to. And so the, the promise of the resurrection is not, Hey, this doesn't matter. The promise of the resurrection is no matter what happens, I am not going to have to carry this forever. And so while I have to carry it right now, how am I going to make that matter for other people and for myself until the day that I get to put it down? I don't even necessarily want people to agree with me, (laughs) uh, which is saying a lot. Yeah. But I do want us to be able to tell the truth to each other. And not demand that each other's burdens have to be ignored for the gospel to be true. Mm -hmm. I want us to be able to look each other in the face and say the whole truth of, of the hard things that we carry. And to be able to say, yes, that is true. And it is not good. And the gospel is true. And it is good. And both of those things are true. 
and your brokenness and your burden and your grief and your sorrow is not a threat to the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. And, and when we can start treating each other's burdens like they're not a threat to the gospel, then we can start doing the actual redemptive work of doing justice and, and making yeah. the kingdom of God on earth as its ambassadors. When systemic racism is not a threat to the gospel, then we can start doing racial justice. When vulnerable people asking you to change the way that you do church is not a threat to the gospel, then we can start loving our neighbors sacrificially in a way that tells them that we are really pro-life in, in actions and truth, not just in words yeah. in the voting booth. Yeah. When sex abuse survivors come to churches and say, this person did this thing to me. And we can tell the truth about that and not say that that harmed person is a threat to the gospel. Then we can start making our churches safe places for the broken. But until we're able to look at each other's hurts and not be threatened by them and not think that Jesus is threatened by them, then we're, we're going to just be in this cycle of of not being able to bear one another's burdens, not being able to walk into wholeness and healing and holiness, and not being able to have any kind of transformative power in our culture. Like the purpose of us being changed is so that we can then be transformative, right? And we can't do that if we can't even tell the truth about the thing that is changing us. I can only be in control of that for me, but... And I know the freedom that it is to be able to tell the truth about hard and heavy things. It seems almost too perfect that there are birds singing outside my window as I'm recording when this is what I want to say. Our grief, our painful experiences, and the truth about them is not a threat to the gospel. Telling the truth about broken things isn't what breaks those things. I started this episode with a quote from K.J. Ramsey's book, This Too Shall Last. I'd love to symmetrically bookmark this episode by ending it with another quote from that book. Whether we try to escape it or pretend we aren't there, suffering is a place we will repeatedly occupy as we await the return of Jesus and the restoration he will bring. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangled Faith Podcast. Colby, Kat, and Emily will be back next week to share what life looks like for them currently. In the meantime, if you haven't already, check out the bonus episode with Kat, in which we talk about the movie Encanto. Encanto? Encanto? I don't know how to pronounce it. And how that relates to truth tellers attempting to tell the truth about broken systems. This episode is made possible by my membership community. They get special perks like a Discord group and bonus audio. This week, I had so much amazing audio from my conversation with Emily. I'm sharing what couldn't fit here as a bonus audio with them. If you're interested, you can check it out at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be amazing if you would share it with a friend and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.